Well, afternoon, everyone. Good to see you. It's been a while, but here we are for some more excellent teaching. Um, you are in the Purposeful Community Seminar uh, with Andrew Bunt. So if you weren't supposed to be in that, now's the time to leave. But really, it's too late. It would be awkward. Um, really excited that Andrew is here uh, to speak to us. Andrew's part of the staff at King's Church Hastings. Uh, he's just uh, he's involved in teaching there and also in a lot of their uh, planning and organizing as well. And he's part of a new site that that church is just starting uh, in a town called Bex Hill, which is next to Hastings. And uh, I got to know Andrew uh, along with Deb when we were going down to Academy. Uh, when we did that in London probably like three years ago now. And we just really connected and have a really good friendship. And it's uh, great to have him up here. I think he's got loads of real wisdom uh, to share with us that's going to really bless you. Uh, uh, so uh, let's welcome Andrew. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. Luke's just kind of nicked everything I might have said to introduce myself, so I won't say any more. Other than that, it's lovely to be in Scotland. I've not been here very often, but I really like Scotland. I love Edinburgh, the city, and just really exciting to be part of this event. I think last year you had Natalie Williams here, who's part of our team down in Hastings, and she spoke really highly of the event, so I was really excited when Luke and the guys asked me to come and join you this weekend. And I'm really excited to talk about a purposeful community. And I don't know about you, but you might think, Andrew, you're a bit confused. You're at the wrong conference. Because why are you talking about community when the conference is a mission conference? What have community and mission really got to do with each other? So before we actually talk about what sort of purposeful community should we be building and how do we do that, I just want to take some time to talk about, well, how do community and mission actually relate to each other? Because actually I believe that biblically there's a big connection between the two, even though we might first think they're very different things. One's kind of an inside thing, one's kind of an outside thing. I think getting um, uh, community right, church community right, is important for mission. Because so often when we think about mission, we focus only on the invitation. We focus on how we're inviting people to something, and we think we're going to get the right words. And it's like you're inviting people to an event. You've got the right words, you've got the right design, you set it at the right time, you set it to the right people in the right place. And we actually never focus on the event we're inviting them to. And if you did that with a, a party or something, you'd have this wonderful invitation, and they come along to the event, and they kind of peer in, and they think, oh, man, that's not as good as you said it would be. That's not quite what I thought it would be. And they kind of sneak away. They don't hang around. And, of course, that's a very imperfect picture, because wonderfully... God has already dealt with most of the event, and every Christian you put, or every person you put, their faith in Jesus receives every spiritual blessing. The, the best part of the event is already done by him, praise God. But actually, there is part of the event he calls us to do as well. He calls us to be a community. He calls us actually to partner with him in creating part of that event. And I think if we don't get church community right, sometimes the invitation is great, but actually people stumble when they kind of come to follow Jesus and come into the church because we haven't really got the full vision of what God wants us to do. And I think there are two reasons in particular, or two ways that community and mission interrelate, two ways that getting church community right helps us to think about and helps us in partnering with God in his mission. The first one is that community is attractive. Every human heart has been created with a kind of inbuilt need for human community. And so when you see a good, healthy human community, every human heart is kind of attracted to it. There's something there we see that we want. And that's really biblical. Biblical theology explains that to us. Go right to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2. God's created this perfect world. He plants his beautiful garden. Into the garden, he places Adam, the first human. And everything is perfect, and Adam's relationship with the creation is perfect. Adam's relationship with God is perfect. And yet God says there's one thing that's not quite right. The thing that's not quite right is this guy, he's on his own. And so he brings him all the animals, and he thinks maybe an animal will do the job when Adam goes through all the animals. He names them all, but there's no kind of good companion found for him. And it's not until God creates another human being that he can say, ah, this is good, the problem is solved. That's because God has created us as humans with a need for human-human community. It's kind of hardwired into who we are, into how he's made us. Even notice when Adam had a perfect relationship with God. So actually, the I'm feeling lonely, and so someone tells you, oh, you need to get closer to Jesus. Jesus is all you need thing. doesn't actually fit what the Bible says. Jesus is all we need for salvation, absolutely. But actually, God has made us with a need for human community, as well as a need for our relationship with him. And that's why true community, as the church should be, is attractive to all humans. God's built it into us. And I was thinking about, okay, how do we see this in action in the world around us? The obvious example is friends. It's the friends phenomenon. 
And then I kind of thought, well, yeah, Friends was really, really popular, and there was something about the community attractive to us, and I thought, but let's be honest, that ended, I think it's like 13 years ago or something. So I thought, well, I'll just check. I wonder if it's still... I know, we all feel really old now. I thought, well, I wonder if it is still a relevant example. So I kind of looked into it a bit. And actually, Friends has enjoyed a resurgence of popularity in the past, even the past couple of years. And there are some really amazing stats. Things like in the US, uh, 16 million people watch Friends Weekly. So that puts it kind of on a par with brand new network TV in the US. It's still got that huge draw on kind of viewership. Um, I looked at BuzzFeed. Okay, BuzzFeed, if you're not familiar with that, is a website, kind of news and um, entertainment stuff, really big among, I guess, the kind of millennial generation. You know, many of whom, the target audience of BuzzFeed, were very young, if not kind of too young, when Friends was uh, on air originally. And I looked at the previous four weeks of BuzzFeed when I was doing this, and in just the previous four weeks, there have been at least eight posts about Friends on BuzzFeed. Even for a new generation, it's still one of the kind of most commonly talked about things there. And then I found that in, what was it, 2016... Friends was ranked the 22nd most popular TV show in the world. So that's TV viewings, uh, online streaming, social media discussion. And you might think 22nd doesn't sound very high, but for a show that hasn't been made for 13 years, it still has this incredible popularity, which actually is on the increase worldwide. And I think that's because what we see in Friends is a human community we all find attractive. And it's not just me who thinks that. Marta Kuffman, who's one of the creators of Friends, so she thinks part of the appeal is wish fulfillment. And another part is because people are on social media all the time, so I believe they crave human contact. They crave intimacy and intimate relationships. And then an article in the New York magazine, a TV critic said, when we're streaming friends, we can plug into the fantasy of a time not that long ago, but in a completely different age, that was fantastically more appealing in its promise of human connection back when connection had an entirely different meaning. The reason that Friends was and Friends still is so popular is because we're seeing it, this really attractive idea of human community and that God-given need in us for human community kind of is uh, ignited by it and excited by it. There are all sorts of other things. Loneliness in our country is sadly another evidence of our need for human community. You might be aware the last again, couple of years, newspapers have started calling the UK the loneliness capital of Europe. And there's actually currently a government commission established, I think actually in the memory of Joe Cox, established to um, investigate and try and think about how do we solve the problem of loneliness in the UK. And they found that over one in five people admit to often or always feeling lonely. That's in our country, around us. And recent research actually shows that the health effects of loneliness can be as serious as the effects of smoking, of high-fat diets. It increases chances of stroke, of heart disease. All of this is pointing to the facts we're made for human community, and there's something going wrong because we're not getting it. And you just see it in society's obsession and quest to find a romantic partner. Because actually, we live in a culture where the only kind of acceptable form of intimacy is in a romantic relationship and in sexual relationships. And so actually, that God-given need is being uh, distilled down into this quest to find the one person, the one person without whom I'm never really going to feel content. And so we see that in TV shows, in films, even in the lyrics of songs. It's all about this quest to find that one person. And it's all evidence of this uh, need that God's put within us for that. And you see, church as community feeds into mission because we're meant to be a community. We're meant to be a family. A family of equals who are equally bad but wonderfully equally saved by Jesus. Who come and even though we're from completely different backgrounds, we look completely different, we might talk differently, all these things... Actually, we're united in genuine relationships of love. And actually, what we have in the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, so we have a unique ability to do this, should be attractive to people outside. It should be something that kind of woos people along so that they come along, they're attracted by this idea, and in doing that, they encounter Jesus. And he rescues them, he transforms their life. Also, on the flip side, badly done church community can be a real barrier for mission. Like I said, the invite can be great, and then people come along, actually, they feel just as lonely as they felt before. They feel left out, or they feel like they're being excluded. They don't experience that sense of family, what God's made them for. And actually, they might not stick around. Church community should be attractive to people like a light is attractive to a moth. 
But if you turn the light down, the moth's not as bothered. It doesn't see the light. It doesn't come to it. And actually, by getting church community right, it's like we're turning up that light. And it's one of the ways that Jesus draws people and woos people to himself. So that's the first way that uh, mission and community go together. The second way is that community creates plausibility. What we're talking about, we talk about mission, we're saying that we're partnering with God in calling people to turn away from an old life where they're living in rebellion from God, as we all did, and actually to live in submission to him, to live in obedience to Jesus, to follow the path that he took. Jesus described it as denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. And so often there'll be a cost to this. A key part of the call of mission is to call people to repent. That means to turn away from an old life. And often that will mean leaving behind things. It will mean that old life gets left behind. And for some people, that will mean losing community. It might mean losing friends. It might mean being rejected by parents, by family, siblings, even spouse, even children. It can be a hugely costly thing. And that's what Jesus said, actually. But Jesus said not only is there a huge cost to repentance and turning away from old life, there's also incredible blessing. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says some people are going to lose community and turn into him, but actually they should then find it again. He promises to restore it to us. And I believe part of the key way he does that is by bringing us into this new family the church. It means that though turning to Jesus might be hugely costly for people, actually if church community is done right, if we are living as family, actually it becomes plausible. It's not this impossible, painful situation of how could God take me from that and leave me in this? Actually, it's, it's the pain of leaving that, but here's a wonderful new family to come and to join. And this, I think, is especially it's relevant to all of us, but maybe it's especially relevant as we think about mission to single people in our culture and mission to same-sex attractive people in our culture. So for single people, to be single as a Christian is to be celibate. The Bible is really clear there are two ways to live, as a single celibate person or as a married person. And sex is reserved for marriage relationships between one man and one woman. And yet, to the world, that sounds incredibly costly. You're telling me that if I turn to follow Jesus and I'm single, actually, I don't get to have sex with people. I'm kind of denied that kind of intimacy. It's hugely costly to the world around us. But actually, church community is meant to make it plausible. Because we know actually sex isn't the only way of having intimacy. We know that that quest that society is on isn't the only way God can meet the needs he's put in us. Church community should be a place where all of us, whether we're married or whether we're single, can experience family, can have intimate friendships, can receive the love that God has made us to receive. And then likewise, it's very similar for people who are same-sex attracted. For those of us who are same-sex attracted, often the experience will be that we remain single and celibate for the rest of our lives. We want to be faithful to Jesus. That will usually mean remaining single, remaining celibate. Often for people who are same-sex attracted and turn to Jesus, there'll be huge costs. They might well be leaving incredible community, incredible sense of uh, community and family they may have been experiencing. It might mean leaving partners, or at very least leaving the potential for having a partner. It's a hugely costly thing, and actually we see the extent of the cost in the fact that some Christians are changing their views on what the Bible says about same-sex attraction, not really because they're convinced by any new arguments of what the Bible says, because they just think it's implausible. They think you can't really say to someone that actually you can't have sex all your life, or you're not going to have a romantic relationship all your life. Even Christians are saying that's just not plausible, it's not possible, and so they're changing their views. But actually, God's vision is that we are a church community, a church family, where even someone who might look down the timeline of their life and think, chances are, I'm never going to have a romantic relationship. Chances are, I'm never going to have a sexual relationship. can go, but actually, I can be fulfilled in life. I can know the love that God has made me for in a church community. And that's been my experience. When I reached my early teen years, I found that I'm same-sex attracted. There were erantic and sexual desires for guys rather than for girls. At the same time, I believed, I've continued to believe as I read the Bible, study the Bible, that God has created uh, marriage and reserved sex and marriages between one man and one woman. This amazing portrayal before our eyes of the relationship between Christ and the church. And actually, God has taken me on this journey of realizing, of learning, experiencing that church community can be my family. Just because I won't ever have a boyfriend, just because I won't ever have a sexual relationship, doesn't mean I'm condemned to an impossible situation. 
but actually church as family is the place that God has put me to make it plausible, make it possible. It means that the love he's created me to need, I can actually experience. And often I think when it's fixing a mission, the problem is we've often spoken the truth. We can be quite quick to speak the truth, but then we as churches have not lived the truth. And actually we've spoken the truth and not lived the truth. It means we're not giving any help to people when we're calling them to follow Jesus. It's like we've given them one of those toys. You know, for babies, you get those toys that are wooden boxes and they have the different shapes cut out. And we've given them one and we give them the shape, but there's no uh, shape, there's no hole in the box for their shape to fit in. And often for single people, for same sex attractive people, that's what church can feel like. There's no place for me to fit where actually I can feel comfortable. Because actually there's a sense of I need to know love. But if we don't live out God's vision for community like that, it feels like there's no help. There's no place for us. So the second way that mission and community link together is that community creates plausibility. Actually, by living out God's vision for the church, anyone, whatever our background, whatever our situation, I believe, can find it's a plausible, fulfilling way to live life is to follow Jesus. So community is attractive. Community creates plausibility. And if that's the case, if we've got to think in mission not just about the invite, what are we saying, how are we doing it, but about the event itself, what do we need to do? We need to build this purposeful community. And to build this, just like any building, really, I think there are two halves. If you were going to build a new house, you want to clear the plot of land so it's all ready and kind of empty for you to build on. And then you need to start laying the foundations. So the first thing we need to do is we need to clear the ground. There are loads and loads of lies that the world around us is telling us and affecting us with, often without us even realising, without us knowing. And they damage our ability to live out God's vision for community. So step one, actually, is to clear away uh, the damage of the lies that culture is telling us about relationships, about love. And then we have to build. Then we lay foundations. We think, well, what are the principles that will help us to build a purposeful community? What does the Bible say to us about actually what does it look like? How do we actually do it on the ground to build this purposeful community? So before I give us three lies, I think the culture tells us we need to clear away, and three foundations to uh, start building this community, I just want to give you a couple of minutes, turn to one or two people around you, think, what do you think are the lies that culture is telling us in the area of relationships and love, which hamper us being the community God wants us to be? And the more do you think of the foundations, what are the really important things that we do and that we believe as we seek to build those communities of ourselves? Take a few minutes to engage that yourselves, and then I'll tell you what I think uh, the Bible teaches us. Okay. I always like it when it's a nice chatty group. It's always encouraging. By the way, hopefully we'll have Q&A at the end. So um, do be thinking as we go along, there's questions that are coming out of this that you want to ask and we can think about together. So hopefully you've come up with a few lies there and a few foundations you would give. Here's some that I think are really important for us to know about. The first one is the lie that relational fulfillment is found only in marriage or nuclear family. What that basically is saying is I'm never going to feel happy and content and satisfied until I have a partner and until I have my own kind of family unit. And that is one of the big messages in the culture around us. It might be uh, that we're so used to it we don't notice it, but actually all around us we're being sent this message, until I have a romantic relationship or until I have my own family, I'm never going to feel happy. Here's a few places where I think we see it in action. First dates. Have you ever watched this? So many people come to the first dates restaurant and they say, my life's wonderful and I've got a great job and I've bought a flat and some great friends even they might say. But they say the one thing missing, the one thing that will really make me feel satisfied in life is if I can find that one person. There's this obsession until I found the one person. Everything else might be amazing. You do look at these people, you think, you've got a great life. But they say, no, no, the one thing that's missing is that one person. Or, a bit of insight to my life here, I'm a big Downton Abbey fan, the Crawley Sisters, think about Downton Abbey, the whole narrative of five, six seasons of Downton Abbey is, will the Crawley Sisters find husbands? And unless they find husbands, oh, it's terrible, we can't leave Edith on her own at the end of six seasons. It would be a terrible, terrible curse. It's all feeding into this lie that until we've got that one person, we can never truly be happy, never truly be satisfied. Or another of my favourite shows, The Big Bang Theory, you're familiar with this. Think of Rajesh, who has this amazing group of friends, and yet is constantly miserable because he hasn't found the one. He hasn't found that one romantic relationship, but he kind of believes this lie that until he does that, 
actually he won't be happy, he won't be satisfied. All of those things are just silly little windows into the lie that culture is constantly telling us, that actually until we find that kind of relationship, we can never really be satisfied. It's true in the culture around us, I think it's also a lie that's come to infect the church in various ways and for various reasons. In the church, we rightly value and honor marriage. It's this wonderful gift of God to humanity. But I do think we've overplayed it. Often, actually, we've reacted against what happened in the middle of the last century. We call this sexual revolution, where basically people in the world around us went, oh, let's just have sex with whoever we want. Marriage isn't important. Having a stable relationship isn't important. And the church kind of panicked and went, no, 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 that's not how it should be. We must all get married and have sex and show people how it should be. And it's right that we, uh, we speak truth into the culture and we seek to demonstrate righteousness to the culture. But what that did is it put marriage right up here. And actually, it became the only good Christian way of living. And we believe this life, the only place we're really going to be satisfied is if we get married. I've experienced that in my own life. Many Christians have said to me when I've shared about my experience of same-sex attraction, the likelihood that I'll be single and celibate the rest of my life, they say, oh, but won't you be lonely? It's this, yeah, wonderful. It's a wonderful lie. People have believed it. People uh, outside the church and inside the church have all said that to me, but, but won't you be lonely? Because they've believed this lie. They haven't seen God's vision for the church. Often in the church, we suggest it in all sorts of things. We suggest it by our leadership, which tends to be married people. By the words we say, the sermon illustrations we use, all sorts of little things are just reinforcing, often without us even realising it, this message that the place where you've really made it and you really feel satisfied is if you've uh, got married, you've found a romantic partner. And there are two really big dangers that come if we do believe this lie in the church. The first is that singleness becomes unbearable. It becomes this utterly implausible way of living because you're destined always to feel uh, frustrated and unfulfilled. You're not getting what God has created you to need. But of course, that's not what the Bible presents us with. The Bible presents us with Jesus and Paul, who were both uh, single guys and seemed to be satisfied in their life. The second danger of this lie is that it kills community. Because actually, if we think the only way we're really going to feel fulfilled in life is if we've got that one romantic partner, then if we're already married, then all we're going to do is focus on investing in that relationship. And actually having good, strong, healthy friendships outside of that kind of goes by the wayside. It's not important. This is where it really matters. And on the flip side, if we're single, the temptation becomes to obsess about finding the one so that likewise, we don't invest in having lots of good friendships, of being family as church, of having community. We become fixated on this one quest, this one thing, and it just kills any sense of being the kind of big family, big community that God has called us to be. But the Bible paints a very different picture. The Bible says, yes, we do have legitimate needs for love, but actually marriage is only one way, only part of God's solution for that human need, part of God's solution for humanity's aloneness. The Bible says that as church communities, we're meant to be families, that the Holy Spirit has binded us together, put us as the body of Christ, and that works in our hearts that we can love each other so that all of us, whether we're married, whether we're single, actually can have genuine relationships of love within the church. So that's line number one that I think we need to clear away. Line number two is the lie that love equals sex. And what that means is the lie that says that you can't really have an experience love without having sex. And actually the first lie we just mentioned is in many ways fueled by this. I think actually underneath the surface of the culture's quest to find the one person is actually a, a quest to have sex because we think that that's the only place we can experience intimacy that we want to experience. But you also see it in the fact that it means we interpret any kind of genuine sense of love as something sexual. It kind of uh, causes us to fear really developing genuine friendships of love with people. It causes us to hold back for this sense of it might be inappropriate or people might think it's inappropriate. There's a whole genre of films built around this idea. There's a genre of bromance where you get two guys who have a really great friendship, a genuine friendship with real love there. But the whole uh, film, the whole premise of this genre is built on the kind of awkwardness of, is that really possible? Can two guys really have a relationship of love without it being a romantic thing, without it being a sexual thing? But friends, this uh, view, this lie is not biblical theology. This is the work of Sigmund Freud who was obsessed with sex, who said that everything is about sex. Actually, the Bible shows us the genuine possibility we can have real relationships of love without there needing to be sex involved. 
We see friendships like Jonathan and David in the Old Testament have this wonderful uh, covenanted, actually, relationship, this kind of agreement between themselves. We see uh, Ruth and Naomi, another Old Testament example, or Jesus and Lazarus. When Lazarus dies, Jesus comes to the tomb and he actually weeps. He has such love for his friends that he weeps over the fact that he's died. And actually, we see evidence of this lie even further in the fact that some of these friendships, even in the Bible, have been interpreted as kind of homoerotic, interpreted as they're a bit dodgy, there's something else going on, because we believe the lie that love equals sex. And so even some of us, we might read a verse like this, 2 Samuel 1.26, this is David speaking, he says, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And scholars have read that and they said, oh, clearly David and Jonathan were gay. And even some of us will read that and we kind of feel uncomfortable that David would say something like that. That's because we believe this lie that if there was genuine love there, there must be a sexual element. There must be more to it, as it were. But the Bible shows us that love can be experienced and intimacy can be experienced without sex. And what's really striking is that when Jesus teaches about love, he doesn't talk about marriage. He doesn't talk about romantic relationships at all. He talks about friendship. Jesus says, uh, John 15, he says, Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus thinks, how can I illustrate to people what love looks like? He says, I know, friendship. Friendship, he says, should be a place where there is real, genuine love involved. And I know in my own life, my own experience, this has been such a breakthrough for me. I can remember the moment when I realized that actually my core issue was about love, not about sex. As long as the core issue is about sex, my situation seemed impossible. God says, I can't have sex, and yet I feel like the culture is telling me there's a need for it. Actually, when I realized, no, what's going on is I have a need to be loved. And actually, God says, I can have genuine uh, experience, express love in the context of family, in the context of church relationships. Suddenly, there was a way forward. It wasn't this impossible situation where, well, how can this be reconciled? Suddenly, it's like, no, no, God has provided everything I need. There is a way for me to move forward. To clear the ground, to build this community, we need to reject this lie and embrace the wonderful truth that we can have real love without having sex. And then the final lie that our culture tells us is the lie that nuclear family, which means a kind of married couple, often with kids, should be closed. That it's to be this kind of closed-off unit. Now, of course, it's absolutely right that a marriage relationship is exclusive. The purpose of marriage is to portray for us the Christ-Church relationship, this beautiful, exclusive, committed relationship. But actually, we often go a step further than saying the marriage relationship is exclusive, and we say that this whole nuclear family unit is kind of closed off. If you're familiar with the phrase, an English man's house is his castle, that sense of uh, an English man's house is somewhere you don't let other people in, it's where you go to retreat, it's your refuge, a place guarded from others. I think often in our culture, our nuclear family is our castle. There can so often be things that are closed off and we don't let other people in, and we just see it as quite odd, actually, if we let other people in. Even in the church, that can be the case. I know I've got some friends who, a number of years ago, were telling me that their dream was to have a big house and to live in this big house with several nuclear family units there. And I remember at the time thinking it was really weird, kind of thinking this is a really kind of hippie-ish idea and thinking that's not how it should be. But actually, I think they caught something. Actually, there's no reason why nuclear families should be closed off. In my own life, I've just moved house actually two weeks ago. Um, moved to, uh, as Luke said, Bexhill. We're planting a venue of our church. And I've moved in with a lovely couple who are in their early 60s. I'm lodging with them. And that's been, in many ways, a conscious decision of ours, actually, to live together and to be community together. But some of my friends have just thought it's really odd. The looks on their faces have been brilliant as I've told them what I'm doing. I've been in a house share for a few years, and some of them, I think, see it as a kind of a, a backward step thing and a bit weird that I'm kind of interfering in this couple's family. Because they haven't caught that actually we're called to be family together. And nuclear family, while being a unit, shouldn't be closed. It should be open. It should be welcoming uh, kind of other people in. Jesus called us to expand our vision of family. There's a story in the Gospels, Mark 3 and other places, 
where Jesus is in a house. He's teaching. There's lots of crowds around. He's getting kind of really popular. Word is spreading. And his, um, his mum and his brothers come to see him. They actually basically think he's losing his marbles. He's going crazy. And they come to see him, but they can't get through the crowds. So they send this message through the crowd, and the message comes, Oh, Jesus, your mum and your brothers are outside. They want to see you. And we read the story. We think, well, we know Jesus. Jesus is the good guy. Obviously, Jesus is going to say, Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Let me go out. Let me see what they want. Let me check they're okay. And he doesn't. He just sits there. And he looks around him and he says, well, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? He says, the people who do the will of my father in heaven, they're the ones who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. He kind of enlarges our view of family, enlarges our family responsibilities. He says, actually, now we are family. That is our identity. And so nuclear family shouldn't be a closed off thing. It should be an open thing, welcoming other peoples in. And what that means is that all of us, whether we're married or whether we're single, whether we've got kids or we haven't, we get to experience being family together. No one misses out, actually, because God has brought us together. So there are three lies that kind of help us to clear the ground as we reject the lies and we embrace the truth the Bible tells us. Once we've got our clear grounds, we then need to think about how do we actually build this community on the ground. So let me give you three foundations for building the kind of community God wants us to be. The first foundation is that church community is personal. Let me ask you a question. How many people know you? And how many people do you know? But then let me slightly change that question. How many people really know you? How many people kind of know uh, what's what's going on in your life? How many people know what are the biggest battles, the biggest areas of temptation in your life? How many people would feel comfortable to challenge you about what you're doing or something going on in your life? And just how many people do you have with whom you'd feel comfortable sharing absolutely any, anything? I think for many of us, the answer would be barely any, actually. Though for many of us, the answer would be no one. We don't have anyone really like that. That's because we've lost depth in our friendships, in our relationships, We live in this kind of age of social media where we can have hundreds and hundreds of contacts, but very few real connections. But to have real community requires openness, requires authenticity. It requires us to be personal. And that's really difficult. There's all sorts of things that make that difficult, especially, I think, in the world we now live in. We live in a world damaged by self-reliance, this kind of philosophy that I must be okay on my own. And that if I admit that I need the help of others or I admit weakness, I'm kind of not living up to the ideal and people will look down on me. And of course, what that does is it stops us opening up. We think, well, I can't admit to people what I'm really like or what I'm really feeling. It stops us really ever connecting. We've also been really damaged by busyness. Busyness is a serious disease which affects not just our diaries, it much more seriously affects our minds, it affects our way of thinking and how we choose to do things. And actually what the disease of busyness in our culture tells us is that unless we're busy and we're doing stuff and normally we're working, we're not succeeding. And actually to be able to say to someone when they ask you how you are, to say, oh, I'm busy is kind of this marker of success. And what that means is that we downplay the importance of just spending time with people of actually developing these personal relationships, which can only happen through time. And I see it in my own life. I see it, I kind of think, if oh, what if someone asked me at church tomorrow what I did on Saturday? And all I can say is, well, I hung hung out with that family all day. There's this sense of, oh, I'll be failing. What a waste of time. But actually, no, no, no. That's what God wants us to do. God's created us to need that. God wants us to do that. It's not a waste of time. But this disease of busyness kind of draws us to other things, and relationships just get pushed out. The reality is, of course, we can't have this kind of relationship with lots of people. It doesn't work like that. But Jesus is a great model. Jesus seems to have had loads of friends. Wherever he went, there are people who seem to know him and love him. But he had the 12 with whom he lived life. And even actually within the 12, there were three disciples in particular who he seems to have really uh, been particularly close to. Jesus knew that you can't do this to everyone, but you do need some people. You need those personal relationships. And this takes time. It really does. You've got to invest in them. There's no shortcut, really, other than investing time in being with each other. It takes effort. It's a lot harder, to be honest, to have real personal relationships than it is to have superficial relationships. It requires us to have a lot of grace, to be very quick to forgive. It requires us to have real commitment to these friendships. But I believe it's a key foundation to the kind of community that God wants us to build as the church. That's the first foundation. Church community is personal. 
Second one is that church community is loving. And this kind of links in with some of those lies that we've talked about. We need to reclaim the place of love in our friendships, holding to that truth that actually love doesn't equal sex. There can be genuine love without sex, without romantic relationship going on. And love is meant to characterize who we are as Christians, as church communities. This is amazing verses in John's Gospel, in John 13, similarly repeated near to where uh, Dave read us this afternoon, where Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus says we're to love each other as he has loved us. He says this just after he's washed the feet of the disciples, which in the world they were living in is the actions of a slave. He says this the night before he will hang executed on a Roman cross for his disciples. He said that's the kind of love, love in action, that you're meant to show for each other. It's love which is active. It's love which preferences the other. And I think we need to reclaim genuine expressed love, which isn't romantic, which isn't sexual, but there's genuine love in our relationships. And that's vital for all of us. God has made all of us to need that. But maybe especially for those of us who are single, for those of us who are same-sex attracted, we need that kind of relationship to make following Jesus plausible, to meet the needs that God has rightly put in us. And so all of us should be looking for kind of practical ways, thinking, well, how can I love other people? How can I grow in my love for others? And how can I actually genuinely express that? And for me, it's been really helpful just to recognize that different people feel love and express love in different ways. And to think, well, how can I best love my friends? So one of my friends where I used to live, he would love to talk at length about his work and his hobbies, and he kind of really cared that people were interested in it. And he would feel loved when people took an interest in his life and what he was talking about with his work and his hobbies. Now, to be frank, I didn't understand what he did for a job. I had very little interest in most of his hobbies, despite the fact we were good friends. But when I realized this, I made a point. I thought, I'm going to try and remember what you say about these things. I'm going to try and understand. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask how these things are going. Not because I have any interest in them, but because I love you. And I want you to know and to feel that you are loved by me. It's kind of a really practical way. And I think even actually to have conversations about this is really good. I just think it's really odd that we always often hear people talk about the importance of communication in marriage, and we never talk about it for any other relationship. I reckon communication is pretty important in friendships, just as it is in marriage. And I've had conversations with people where I said, actually, when this happens, I feel really, really loved. Actually, you know, can you do that more? When I said to them, how can I uh, express love to you? How can we grow in this relationship of genuine expressed love? We need, of course, to be uh, sensible in this. Uh, we want to avoid temptation. We do also need to be aware of cultural ways, and this is kind of complex. We don't want to be, um, uh, I, can, I guess, kind of squashed by culture, but we want to be sensitive to it so we're not misleading people into thinking the wrong things, so that we're sensitive to what Paul the Apostle would call weak Christians who haven't as easily embraced the truth. But we really do need to develop these relationships of genuine expressed love. And I just think that we as the church have a wonderful uh, opportunity to show the world you can have love without having sex. The world is on this quest to feel loved, which is being totally misinterpreted and kind of put into the wrong channels. We actually as the church can demonstrate to the world that there's real love, real relationships of intimacy on offer without having to be on that quest. And then the final foundation, which I think helps us to create the kind of church community that God wants, is that church community is proactive. For this to really happen in our local churches, all of us have to play a part. All of us have to be proactive. For the one, that's because these lies we've talked about are going to be kept saying to us. We're going to keep hearing them. Everything we're engaging with all around us, they're keeping bombarding us. And so we need to be proactive about actually reminding ourselves of the truth choosing not to take these lies in. But the other reason why being proactive is so key to this is because community really only happens when everyone plays their part. Community actually isn't really something that exists and you then find and you go and join in. Community is something you create and you sustain and you maintain by doing it. That means that all of us have our part to play to, uh, to make it happen. So for all of us, we need to think, how can we be family for other people? How can we really genuinely love and express love to other people? How really, we're asking, can we be good friends to other people? 
And my encouragement is always, if you feel like you're disconnected and you're not experienced church as family, don't sit around and wait for someone to love you and look after you. Actually think, how can I love other people? How can I be family for other people? Especially for us who are single, it's very easy as a single to sit around thinking, oh, why aren't all these married people looking after me, inviting me around and being family for me? When actually the truth is we are just as responsible as single people to love and care for and be family for our married and our single friends. And that will look different for all of us. We'll have different uh, kind of ways we can do that. Often for singles, I know for me, in my last living situation, it was really hard for me to host people. But that didn't mean I couldn't be family for them. And actually, I think part of this being proactive, sometimes it's being pushy. Somebody at home says four. So I've done that. So if I couldn't host, I'd say to people, what are you guys doing over the weekend? And can I come and join you? Or even when can I come and join you? It's kind of the sense of we're going to be family together. How are we going to do this? And, you know, the wonderful thing is if every one of us in our church communities kind of thought about this and acted on this and were proactive, in an instant, we'd have the kind of community that God wants. It's something that, uh, that comes into being when we actually do it. It just takes for each one of us to think proactively about this, to do it. And our churches would become these kind of communities that God wants. So proactive, being proactive is a great place really for us to end this. We've all got a, a role to play. We're all called to build purposeful community. And hopefully even as we've gone through today, God's been highlighting to you some specifics. I think actually who are the people you can love? Who are the people you can be family with? How, are the, uh, how can you play your part? We need to clear the ground, get rid of those lies, remembering the truth and constantly teaching ourselves the truth, constantly speaking truth to each other because it's so easy to be infected by these things. But then to lay these foundations, getting really personal relationships, investing time in them, being deliberately and kind of purposefully and actively loving and then being proactive as we do that. Can I pray for us? Ask that God will help for us in it. And then we've got about 10 minutes where we can do some Q&A. Father, we do thank you that you haven't called us to be uh, kind of lone ranger Christians. You haven't just saved us and then left us on our own to go about our lives, but you've brought us into this wonderful community to be a part of your body, to be part of your bride, who one day you will come back to take to be with you. Thank you just for the wonderful privilege of that. Thank you that you have gone before us and prepared for our needs, that when you put in us this need for love, you also had your wonderful plan of church as family. That all of us, whether we're married, whether we're single, young or old, whatever it might be, we can experience that. And I just pray, Lord, would you help us in this room to take hold of your uh, kind of call on us to do that? Would you help us to, be, uh, uh, to recognize these lies and to actually speak the truth to ourselves, to act in light of the truth, not to act in light of these lies? And God, I pray, help us to be uh, proactive about putting into place these foundations. I even pray right now, Holy Spirit, come speak to us. Where can we do these things? Who can we love? Who can we be family for? How can we play a role in being kind of catalysts in our church to see this stuff happen? And God, we do pray that as we uh, work to bring our, our churches to be the kind of communities that you want, God, we say, would that be attractive to people outside of us? Would you woo people to yourself, actually, through the beauty of the community that you create? And would you make it plausible for people to follow you, for single people, for same-sex attractive people, for married people to find true plausibility? Yeah, life with Jesus is good. And part of that is that I've got my church family. God, I do pray, come and challenge us and then help us, just as we've been hearing today, to be not just hearers of this stuff, but to be doers, to go and to put this into action, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Wonderful. We've got just under 10 minutes. We'll open the floor to any questions on this stuff, and we'll have a discussion. I don't have all the wisdom, so we'll have the discussion and uh, see what we can dig out. Yeah, yeah, really good. Quickly for the recording, the question is about how do we uh, not kind of segregate into groups if it's helpful for married people to support married people, single people to support single people. I think, I think my answer is to recognise that 
you don't have to go through something to help someone. So it's absolutely true that sometimes married people will be really helpful support and counsel to married people and single people single people. But just isn't anything, actually. Actually, I think you can. You can apply biblical wisdom. You can love people. You can help people in situations very different from this. Um, so I, think, so I think, yeah, it's getting that balance, and it's remembering that, actually, that it's not just by doing stuff that you can understand and have wisdom, but actually God's giving us a book of wisdom, and that as our mind is renewed, as we imbue the story of what God has done, we're able to do that. So I think that's part of this being proactive, I guess, and part of us probably all being proactive about let's have diversity in our friendships. So actually, let's have uh, married friends, let's have single friends, let's be family together. So I think recognizing that you're not being too uh, too closed off or only that person can help me because they're kind of um they're like me they've been through that actually it's not the only way i think wisdom can come and then being proactive and thinking actually we need um we need both to come together and so i think also in our church there are really simple things like in in small groups actually trying to deliberately have a mixture of people in the same way you want a mixture of ages can be a great thing a mixture of life experiences all sorts actually it's just facilitating church being community and I guess the other thing is you know if you're concerned that's happening in your church be the one who makes a difference rather than the one who complains so if you think oh it's always the married people are all only talking to each other go and butt into the group go and talk to them drag some of your single friends along you know I said I'm pushy um, and kind of make it make a difference I think because it is easy for us to yeah to fall into that but we can make a difference in it good question Great question, yeah. The question was how, so I'm uh, just moved to a new venue, Church Plant. Uh, how are we trying to do it here? Uh, I'm quite lucky in a sense in that the community group that have been meeting in that location, part of our church, I think um, community and families in one of their big cause. <laughs> so I'm already feeling at home of, yes, you've got the same, same page, which is really good. Um, but interesting question, I guess, because you know, we've got new people joining us, and that's actually the more difficult thing. How do you have an established um, community? How do you get that balance of having genuine community and then not being closed off? Because the church should be unique and it should be this really tight-knit, close community, but should never be exclusive, should always be wanting to draw people in. I think it's hard is one thing, to be honest. Um, I think there's a thing of, again, of being proactive, and I guess it probably comes down to teaching people, encouraging people, um, that you just make the choice, actually, to be inclusive, not exclusive. Um, I think partly it's that in general. And so, yeah, actually, you want to train people in church, actually, that... You always want to be prioritizing those who might be on the edges, actually, and to draw them in. I think also, actually, on church level, it's just training people when's the time to do different things. So, actually, Sunday is not the best time to be deepening your friendships. Sunday, if you're a Christian, it's the best time to be looking out for people in church who are new, people who don't know Jesus, to have those as your priority, and actually be investing time at other times in the week to um, deepening the existing friendships, because then you get both. And, of course, hopefully, over time, the people you're meeting are new on a Sunday, you're then also drawing into that stuff you're doing the week, which is deepening your friendships. But I think it would be quite helpful for us, all as churches, to be really purposeful of Sundays, actually, in our culture, are one of our biggest open doors, our bigger, biggest mission opportunities. And even to come to church, that mindset of my priority today, after worshipping Jesus, hearing, applying his word, actually is to look out for those who don't know him, or those who are new to the church. And my priority isn't just to have a good natter with my friends. And I think that can, can help us to kind of live that out. Oh, man, yeah. I've been really, really fortunate. Um, so I lived for a number of years in Darlington, down in the northeast of England, and a couple of families particularly kind of really um, adopted me. I guess it's, usually it's really practical ways, and that's what they've done, actually, is they just got me involved. And so nuclear family then wasn't this closed-off thing. But when they were doing things, they would invite me to join them. And often it's that thing, it's doing normal life, normal things, um, but getting other people involved. So um, they would just invite me to family Sunday dinner. They'd invite me to go on holiday with them. They just thought about ways they could help and bless me, I guess. And they taught me to drive all sorts of things. But, and it wasn't that, you know, we go around and it all has to be fancy. And you get out the candelabras and the seven-course meal. It's, you know, today we've cooked a big vat of this. And so that's what you're getting, basically. I think it was that kind of thing of... 
yeah, drawing people into normal, um, normal life. And where I'm currently, it's the same kind of thing, I think. A lovely, from a particular family I'm thinking of who have just, um, yeah, basically given me a key to the house and just said, coming any time, and we can't promise what we'll be doing, we can't promise we can give you any attention, but you can be in the house, you can take part with whatever's going on. So I think that kind of normality thing. Um, and I think in terms of how they helped me to, you know, bat against those lies, I think there's been quite forthright in speaking truth to me, I guess. I think I've been really blessed with people who have, yeah, really tried to think their way into my life and my life experience, who will very actively affirm their love for me. Um, yeah, in a way, it feels very comfortable, actually. Um, yeah, and I think then talking, I think uh, particularly as I've journeyed through all sorts of things with my sexuality, actually being able to talk, to understand each other better, um, and just them trying to kind of think into my life experience, I guess. And so in that case, they might see you know, lies that creep in, and then to speak truth to myself. But also to add in there, flip side as well, actually, with all of those, we've also worked really hard to make it a two-way thing. As I said, it's very easy to single, to think, look after me and care for me. But actually... Um, I try to be very proactive about how can I actually love them and care them for them as well. It looks completely different, actually, how I can do that. But there are ways I can do that. And however much you might feel you're the one uh, receiving from a relationship, there will always be ways, I think, actually, that you can love back and kind of serve back and help people. We've probably got time for one more. We've got two minutes if there is one more. Maybe it's one of the points where communication is really important. I think you just reach a point where you can talk, quite frankly, of you want more space, am I pushing in too much? And it's delicate balance in there, so there's two sides. One of it is reminding ourselves of the truth of actually, you know, it's right that we have these relationships, it's, it's good for them, you know, it's right that they have relationships outside the marriage, as well as it's good for me to have those kind of relationships with them. I think, I don't know if or not, but what did come to mind there is one of the things that has blessed me is having friendships with Mary Lansing called people of all sorts of different ages and life stages. And I think the way I relate to my newly married friends is very different to the way I relate to those who've got teenage kids or something. And I think dynamics, do I think it's something? I do think it's dynamics of relationships do change and therefore you can have different types of friendships. So for me, it's been quite, um, particularly I guess I'm walking through some quite difficult stuff and needing people just to be able to ring up and say, I need to come around, to have people who or grown up kids who left home or something, often they're more in a position to do that than people who are trying to put little ones to bed or something like that. So I guess diversity and friendship can be a helpful thing there. Communication, and just keep on, yeah, speaking truth to yourself as well, I think. Great, we've reached five o'clock, which I think means dinner time. That means we're going back into the main auditorium. Thank you so much for coming, guys.